Beth Moon. Welcome to the Holiday Moons Podcast, where we share our love for the holidays with you year-round. This is Randy, and I will be continuing our Beach Party movie series with this week's episode, Bikini Beach. (laughs) This is Sydney, and I will be continuing my series on Disney attractions with It's a Small World. After all. Yeah. (laughs) This is Cole, and I will be... Wrapping up my series on off-brand tourism with the Lincoln Tomb. Awesome. So those are some very fun topics for today's episode. Do we have any holiday happenings for the week? Well, we went out to some a couple stores as a family the first time since this COVID stuff hit. Yeah. yeah. And we, of course, we were masked, but we went to Hobby Lobby. We did. We saw some fun seasonal as well as holiday-related things. There's a lot of 4th of July stuff, as well as some fall decorations, which me and Mom gravitated toward immediately. Yeah, that was fun to think about. Yeah. They had some fun summer things. They had some tiki Mm -hmm. things and some surf things. A lot of beach stuff. Yeah, beach stuff as well. Flamingos. Right. It was funny to see the fall stuff up already, though. It was, (laughs) I mean, they're still putting it up, but there was a fair amount of it up. Yeah. They They were in process. Right. Yeah. And lots of fun uh, llama things for for Beth. Right. Yes. No. <laughs> no I'm not a llama. You had uh, one in your cart person. for a while. I know. They put llamas in my cart, and I'm so busy looking around, I don't see them. So we like to see how long the llamas will stay in her cart. <laughs> <laughs> Until she knows. It was a big llama too. <laughs> it was a big llama. It was. She looked over it a couple times. Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> there's like ribbon. And pumpkins. (laughs) There are other things to look at in Hobby Lobby. Speaking of the pandemic, the other thing that we had happen this week was we all got haircuts. Or at least three of us did. Did you get a haircut this week? Yeah. Yeah, this past week. No. So all four of us got haircuts. That's the first time since earlier this year, (laughs) January or February. Yeah, in fact, I was one of the last people to get a haircut at the place that we go to. Like, I got a haircut just days before they closed because of the pandemic. And I got my hairdresser, I got an appointment with my hairdresser the day that she got back. Uh. <laughs> yeah. So you hit it at the very beginning of the pandemic and the very end. Yeah. Or, well, it's not the end, but when they started again. Yeah. So she even mentioned, like, how, like, good that was. Yeah, <laughs> yeah your um, hairdresser, Cole, was her, it was her first day back. Her first day back, yeah. yeah. So she was... Uh, a little behind on a couple things, but um, <laughs> which makes sense because obviously they're going to be slammed. Yeah. Exactly. At that hair salon, they wear masks and we wear masks, so everybody was nice and safe. So it's there. People are learning, you know. Yeah. It's definitely a, a load off of my head. <laughs> yeah. It is. I know. Your hair was crazy cool. Was, yeah, it does feel good to uh, get that haircut done. Um, the other thing, speaking of uh, changes from the pandemic, Disneyland. Uh, as of this recording, announced that they are planning to open up July 17th, which is about a week after the Florida parks are opening, yeah. which is a surprise to a lot of people on Disney that kind of follow the Disney things, uh, because they thought, based on the way California was going, that it would be later in the year. Yeah. So them announcing it in California as early as mid-July is a lot earlier. So this week's beach movie, as I mentioned, is Bikini Beach. This was a movie that was distributed, uh, released in 1964. It actually made some of the most money of oh, all the really? beach 
series, yes, which is kind of funny when you think about it's ranked uh, one level above the muscle beach party movies. Hmm. So it's one better than the one we watched last week, which I don't know that I would agree. I think I like the muscle one better. I did too. It had more of a story to it. Yeah, and I will get into the story. This one reminds me more of, if you've watched any on reruns like Gilligan's Island <laughs> or um, those type of things, it's kind of like that. It's sitcom yeah. It's, it's a little more uh, campy. Yeah. It's, huh. Yeah, it's the word I was looking for. So here's the story of Bikini Beach from 1964. So Frankie, Dee Dee, and the rest of the gang head to Bikini Beach for some more fun surfing, music, and dancing, as they always do. They wake up the next morning to find a large tent compound on the beach, not too far from where they have camped. And actually, they had a camper this time, um, and a big truck that was pulling the camper. So they're all sleeping the inside women the, camp, were. the girls. camper. Right, the girls were, and then the guys were sleeping outside. Uh, at first, they think it's, it belongs to like an Arabian prince because it's so elaborate. But it ends up that it's the headquarters of British singing sensation... Potato Bug, <laughs> who, by the way, is played by Frankie Avalon. Uh, so they go over to see who's there, and they realize, because it has uh, the label Potato Bug above that, or the headquarters of Potato Bug, and the girls are all screaming, and, and you'll understand a little more why they kind of did this as I talk about the uh, how this movie was made. He also has a bodyguard, a female bodyguard, whose name is Yvonne, but she goes by Ladybug, who fends off uh, people from um, from Potato Bug, the singer, using French foot-fighting tactics, which she shows... I don't know what you're talking about. This doesn't sound campy at all. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that's one of the storylines, is this, this guy comes into the beach, the girls are all enamored with him because he's a famous British singer. Nobody really explains why he shows up on their beach. He just okay. does Okay, so then the youngsters um, head back to surfing, and they feel like they're being watched by somebody. It ends up that the other storyline kind of pops up, which is the new menace to their beach fun, who is Harvey Huntington Honeywagon. Harvey Huntington Honeywagon, who intends to throw off the surfers from Bikini Beach so he can expand his senior citizens' retirement community. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and accompanying the millionaire is his chimpanzee named Clyde, who he uses to prove his allegation that young people have sunk to animal levels by demonstrating that his monkey can surf as well as the kids can. Yeah, that's... <laughs> yeah, so that's you can quite see, an argument. Yeah, that tracks. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So, the, the boys are um, um, jealous of Potato Bug... All the kids are not so certain about this honey wagon guy. And third storyline in this is that the British singer who comes potato bug prefers drag racing of up to 200 miles per hour rather than the quote-unquote tame sport of surfing. He actually is good at drag racing, but he, he brags about it enough where Frankie kind of gets involved and says, well, we can drag race as good as you can. Well, and he's interested in Dee Dee. Right. The British singer. Becomes, you know, like all the main characters yes. get interested in Dee Dee. Yes. <laughs> she Dee must Dee. be something else. <laughs> she is. She's such a sweet and girl. That, yeah, and Dee Dee always kind of uses uh, the situation around her to make Frankie jealous. That's right. really her goal. Because she still wants to get married. Third movie with her in it. Still, she talks to him about 
Okay, this is I'm going for marriage here, not just you know yep. I want to get off. Get Wedding bills. Yes, and her solution is to make him jealous. Over, of course, yeah, other over guys again. to be interested in her. Exactly. Yes. Right. Not by marrying a guy that's interested in her. But. Well, no, that right. Would, yeah. Harvey Huntington Honeywagon begins his campaign against the surfers in his newspaper and arouses the ire of a beautiful teacher named Vivian Clements. So this is the first time a teacher who knows the kids, I'll say kids because they're really like in their 20s, um, <laughs> is there to defend them. And she basically barges into Harvey's office and personally challenges his views and agrees to ha- give him a chance to prove his allegations. So they go visit the surfer's hangout, Big Drag's pit stop, but Big Drag refuses to cooperate with Honeywagon. However, while there, motorcyclist Eric Von Zipper and his Rat Pack crash the joint, so they're back. Von Zipper dubs Honeywagon his idol due to his crusade to rid the beach of surfers, who are the cyclists' arch enemies. Honeywagon doesn't really want to be associated with Von Zipper and the gang. What? Um, Who wouldn't yes. want to be? <laughs> so, and and uh, the teacher's like, see the type of people that are associating with you? So they retreat, and Von Zipper accidentally gives himself the Himalayan suspenders treatment, which is the suspended animation finger thing from the first movie. He accidentally does that to himself. So was he, like, demonstrating oh, it yes. or something? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. That's, oh, my God. So, just to, for the listener, if you haven't seen that one... There was a professor that could put his finger up near a temple and of somebody and just yeah of someone and freeze them yeah and so, then just it absolutely frozen in, sp- in place right so von zipper did this himself this is like the equivalent of hitting yourself in the head with a hammer yeah so he did it to himself <laughs> so then frankie and the gang learn more about drag racing because it's going to end up at the drag strip like frankie and uh, potato bugger are going to end up racing against each other. Vivian continues to show Honeywagon how, yes, although Clyde is good, Clyde the chimpanzee is good at things, that there's more to the kids than just animal instincts kind of along the way. So that goes on for some while. They, the kids all pull their money, the kids all pool their money together so that Frankie can race against Potato Bug. Then they're back at Big Drags, which is the place to gather. Now a different band plays here. It's the a group called the Pyramids that play. And they actually come out with wigs on and then they have their wigs pulled off and their heads are shaved. And I'll explain that in a little bit, why that happened. Okay. And the person that owns this hangout is Don Rickles. Yes. The one who was Jack Fanny. Right. In Muscle Man Beach. Right. Exactly. And he actually even references that. That he was that person. But now he's the drag racing guy. Right. So during this time, Frankie and Dee Dee, as they do, they make up along the shore so everything's back together. But then, when Dee Dee insists that Frankie abandon drag racing, it only strengthens his resolve to beat Potato Bug, which makes her mad, and she decides to tell Potato Bug to cancel the race, and he also doesn't want to cancel it. Dee Dee says, okay, well, I'll support you, Frankie. She gave in pretty easily there. Over time, due to Vivian's influence, Honeywagon tempers his hostility towards the surfers, and he actually retracts his views. This makes Von Zipper and his gang very angry, who vow revenge. Frankie disguises himself as Potato Bug to derail Dee Dee's plans to convince the pop star to call off the race. Um, however, like I mentioned, that goes awry and it doesn't work out. 
and then uh, they end up at the drag strip where Von Zipper sabotages the potato bugs dragster hoping Frankie will be blamed for the nefarious deed. However, he mistakenly tampers with Frankie's roadster and the surfer narrowly escapes injury when the car crashes after the race ends in a dead heat. After the flustered Von Zipper inadvertently it reveals that he was the one who tampered with the, the race car, the surfers chase him back to big drags place. And then after a wild melee, which lots of people going through walls, yep. I mean like brick or concrete walls, <laughs> a lot of like frames being stuck over top of people, a lot of like back and forth repeated movements like where somebody would do something and then they would undo it and they would do it again. Like the, the whole like a lot of Any, like, blinking and doinking yeah, a lot of blinking and doinking noises. Yes, I was about to ask. Yes, the uh, Rat Pack ends up hightailing out of there after Von Zipper once again gives himself <laughs> the finger. <laughs> and they kept saying um, he's giving himself the finger, and it's such a different connotation now yeah. than the Himalayan finger treatment that they're talking about. But they keep saying. Be careful, it's going to give him the finger. And it, it just they just keep repeating that phrase, and it's just funny. It was just it was too much, right? <laughs> so then, um, Potato Bug announces his engagement to Ladybug, and Dee Dee reconciles with Frankie, and Vivian and Honeywagon become firm friends. So everything wraps up in the end very neatly. I thought they got married. Um, it wasn't clear. I think they were going heading in that direction, but I don't think they, they actually got married. So... So that was uh, Bikini Beach along the way. So here's some things kind of behind the scenes, which I thought were interesting. So first of all, this is the third of the Frankie and Annette Beach Party films. It had a budget of $600,000, but it made $4.5 million in the box office, making it one of the biggest hits of 1964. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah, that's crazy, isn't it? It probably would have grossed even more if their first choice for the rock group had appeared in the movie, which was The Beatles. What? Oh my goodness. Yeah. Yes. So get this. According to William Asher, Jim Nicholson had seen The Beatles perform in London before anyone in the U.S. had ever even heard of them. What? Asher was slated to direct, and he was co-writing the screenplay with Robert Dylan and Leo Townsend. The script was written where the British pop group comes to the sunny shores of Malibu to see what it was like to live on the beach. The story had the boys, the Beatles, camped alongside the surfers, and one of them would find romance with Annette. But before filming began, the Beatles appeared on The Ed Sullivan Show, which is when their careers in the United States took off like a rocket. Their managers refused to let them appear in the movie for the small fee that was being offered. So they had to quickly rewrite the script, and instead of the four British long-haired singers, they now had one potato bug played by Avalon. Is that funny? That is funny. So the funny thing about the way that Frankie plays Potato Bug is he's a blonde beetle hairdo with a brush mustache, round spectacles, and a front tooth gap. Yeah. So some people believe that Mike Myers and his... So the way he played Austin Powers was actually taken from Frankie Avalon's over-the-top version of Potato Bug in this movie. That's hilarious. <laughs> Isn't it? That is great. Yeah, that's funny. Um, a couple other things of note. So I mentioned that there was a chimp named Clyde in the movie. So, Beth, was this a real chimp? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it was not. <laughs> it no. was a person in a chimp costume. Well, it was like a little gorilla almost. <laughs> almost, yeah. 
And the person who played Clyde the Chip is Janos Prohaska. Yeah, that sounds maybe it's, Swedish or Finnish. He's Hungarian. Hungarian. Yes. He often played roles of animals or monsters in movies, which I think is hilarious. And he's best remembered, if you're going to remember him, for his recurring comic role as the Cookie Bear in the Andy Williams show from 1969 to 1971. Which is funny because we have the Christmas shows and the Cookie Bear actually shows up in those Christmas really? DVDs. Yes. That's hilarious. It is. He's also been on as a either animal or a monster in TV series such as The Outer Limits, Bewitched, I Dream of Genie, Lost in Space, and a few episodes of Gilligan's Island where he plays a gorilla. <laughs> <laughs> so funny. He's also he also drives Oh no, are you saying that the chimp is the yeah. chauffeur? That's ridiculous. Yes, yeah, they have the chimp. Yeah, and the police driving. at one point say we didn't just see a chimp driving a car, did we? So they kind of pull up next to him and the chip waves at them and they said, well, I'm not going to report it. And the other one's like, I'm not going to report it either. So then they report it and they think they're like crazy. Or drunk. Yeah, or drunk. <laughs> yeah. The other thing that he was on, Cole, was the TV series Star Trek. Really? He uh, played Horta in Star Trek's The Devil in the Dark and the Mugato in A Private Little War. Wow. I know. He got around a lot. So we mentioned that the main antagonist's name was Harvey Huntington Honeywagon. It ends up that the surname Honeywagon is a reference to the so-named portable toilets used in the film and television industry at the campgrounds and marinas. Thus, Frankie's reply upon hearing Honeywagon's name, I'd keep that quiet if I were you. Oh, that's why. Yes. Yeah, it was funny because Frankie did even more talking to the audience in this movie. He did. And Beth, there's one more thing. I don't know if you caught it. At one point when they're leaving... Oh, there's actually two more things. But at one point they're leaving uh, an office and there's a werewolf sitting on a chair. Yes. Did you notice that? Yeah, what right. was that about? So this is so funny. So 19-year-old Val Warren, who was billed as the teenage werewolf in the closing credits, was the first prize winner in Forrest J. Ackerman's Famous Monsters of Filmland Magazine's National Horror Makeup Contest, which the first plot, the first prize was a trip to Hollywood and an appearance in Bikini Beach. Oh my goodness! <laughs> he won that. Yes, isn't that funny? They didn't do a good job of um, incorporating him. He was just sitting in no, his office. He was just, and they just said something to him, and and he he like growled or he, something. He grunted or something. <laughs> And, as you recall, there was a cameo of Vincent Price in one of the previous movies. In this movie, the cameo was Boris Karloff. Oh, wow. And he actually was an art collector. And there was kind of an inside joke on uh, Vincent Price's commercials at the time on the Vincent Price collection of fine art being offered at Sears at the time. Oh, that's so funny. Yes, and so Boris Karloff's character kept wanting to buy some of these um, paintings. That... What's his name? Jim. It was Jim Fanny. What was his name? That Don Rickles was Yeah, the Don Rickles character was painting. So even at the end, he says, I'll have to tell Vincent about these. Yeah. (laughs) That was funny. Yeah, so that was fun. It had an interesting set of backstories. I thought it was a fun movie. That was a fun, silly movie. It was very silly. Yeah. (laughs) Moving on to my next Disney attraction. So, if you all had started to catch on, um, I have been talking about 
boat ride attractions what at Disney. <laughs> yes, because the first one was... Uh, Jungle Cruise. The second one was Living with the Land. Mm. And this one, we'll be talking about It's a Small World. Yes. Is it? Yes. So I think I'll continue going with the boat attraction Meaning theme. that they've been boats, but you did not intend them to be boats. Right. <laughs> they just happened to be boats. They just happened to be. And then Dad had mentioned, oh, you know, that should be like the theme. And it really can be because there are so many... Yes, Both attractions. Maybe something after this segment here that would be fun is if we all thought of what our favorite boat attraction is at yeah. Disney. Yeah, so it's a small world. So I feel like over the years, people have gotten a little... Judgy? Yeah. <laughs> Less excited <laughs> for... For it's a small world, right? One is the music, because it, it's a continuous loop. Right, it's an earworm. Earworm is a great word for it. And the second thing is, it's very it, it's a very simple setup mm-hmm. of characters and themes. It's, it's more like an ear drill than an <laughs> earworm. I feel like it, that can be true, but I think... Um, it depends on how long you have to stand in line. Stand in line <laughs> or stand sit in the boats, because I don't right. know if you've... If y'all have been at Disney, at least at Disney World, what tends to happen is if there are too many people, the boats will start bumping into each other and a line will basically form to get out and you are just stuck there listening and watching <laughs> um, until you can listen <laughs> and escape. But I feel like we take it for granted a little bit more than we should. I was really interested in learning more about the history of It's a Small World. A lot of Disney rides... Again, like, we take for granted, like, the simplicity of it, but there's a lot more detail and effort that goes into each Disney ride, um, which makes Disney so unique. It was created for the World's Fair as, like, a pavilion. So... Oh, that's cool. Was it um, Carousel of Progress also created yeah, for I the World's so. Fair? it was. Yeah. PepsiCo approached Disney to create an attraction for their pavilion that would benefit forward the united nations children's fund oh so this is in support of that it was back when pepsi was getting aggressive about its marketing <laughs> right going through disney and that is aggressive so numerous people told walt that he should turn it down the idea and uh, project down but he accepted anyways that's like his theme um the problem here wasn't just that there was a number of pro- other projects underway, but there was a limited time frame. They only had 11 months to design, produce, mock up, ship, and reassemble an entire attraction. Yeah. Wow. So um, essentially, everything that was stacked against this little boat ride, as Walt called it, with limited resources, time, staff, and even the fact that the team had to work with an already constructed show building. This was not going to be an easy feat. And by the way, this is from the Dabs, D-A-P-S, magic.com. Mm. It's called The Evolution of It's a Small World. Not D-A-B-S. No. <laughs> Fortunately for Disney, the world's fair theme was titled Peace Through Understanding. So Walt had an increasing affinity for international cultures and affairs. The working title became Children of the World which helped set the stage for what the attraction would be. Now all Walt needed was the right people to produce his vision and turn it into a reality. When talking about the designers, he initially appointed uh, Mark Davis to be the show designer. Davis was known for his comical design approach, but ultimately it didn't quite have the innocence and whimsy Walt was looking for. So he hired the legendary Mary Blair 
So Mary had done concept art for Cinderella, Peter Pan, and Alice in Wonderland, and had the exact style that Walt wanted for this particular attraction. So it was interesting. So she lived in New York, and but this was happening in California. So what ended up happening was they made it work for her to commute several times over to California from New York. And um, in the meantime, she designed the look of the dolls, the sets, the, and the color palettes. These elements gave the other designers a visual way to create in three-dimensional form. For the dolls, she designed over 350 different dolls from 26 different countries and regions. Wow. Yeah. So Disney sculptor Blaine Gibson and the designer Harriet Burns were tasked to create the dolls based off of Mary's designs to make things very similar. And I really like what they did here. They gave, and given their limited time frame, they made one model of a head that was unisex and simplistic. So basically, from this type of head, they could modify with hair, costuming. different costuming, different pigments for different skin tones. Since these dolls were to represent children, they could be made simplistic while enhanced with costuming to showcase their native lands and genders. Mm -hmm. This attraction was a huge undertaking, obviously. Alice Davis, a costumer for film and live action, references for animation, was brought on to create the costumes for the dolls. Mary had already done the design work, so it was up to Alice to bring them to life and costume each of the 350-plus dolls as authentically as possible. So she had the she had the hard part. They made a head that was like unisex, right. but then you had to like do all this other work to make them right. unique. They were like, our part's done. <laughs> Here you go. Yes. Here's the heads. Right. Here's the yeah. heads and the art. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yes. The building that it was in had been constructed long before Disney signed on to create the attraction. So they had to work with that. And again, it's, it's a boat ride, so that, that made it more interesting. I was going to ask, was it a boat ride there too? Uh, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Like the interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, okay, so next is uh, talking about the song, right? So you think about like a normal ride at a normal theme park, right? It's mm. a roller coaster that has a theme. That's it, right. right? So not only did Walt want a ride with a theme with all these like animatronic <laughs> dolls to represent all these different countries, but he also wanted a song, a very catchy song. Right, as was his way. Right. That people would remember. That's right. That would appeal to both children and adults. And people mm. remember it. <laughs> to be remembered. Let's just stick it up. Stick with that. Um, to fit the theme of peace through understanding. So he hired the Sherman brothers who, yep. as we know, worked on the songs of Mary Poppins. That's right. The legendary Sherman yes. brothers. Yep. The Sherman brothers came up with three songs. The first being, It's a Small World. This says, it, it, and I quote, It had a sweet and catchy melody and the lyrics could be easily translated into other languages for the different regions. It was exactly what Walt wanted, so the other two songs they wrote didn't get a chance to be heard. Oh, wow. <laughs> they wow. could have been great. Yeah, I know, right? And I was kind of sad about that because I'm like, oh, it would have been cool to see what else. Yeah. But apparently Walt was like, nope, this is it. <laughs> wow. And, you know, that, that makes it easy for the Sherman Brothers. And this says it's hard to imagine any other tune fitting to this beloved attraction. So not only did they have to make the song, they also had to figure out how to make it all blend with the countries and transition from one country to it, like one scene to the next, right? Uh, Bobby Hammock was brought in to help um, arrange the song in order to fit musically of the different countries. Again, speaking 
having it spoken in different languages. He added specific instruments and tones from the international regions. Yeah, it is interesting how they transition from room to room, region mm-hmm. to region, and it's the same song, right? But it's got like either instruments or it also sounds sounds like, from that region. It also yeah. sounds like the same singer through all of the same mm-hmm. languages. Like yeah. the tone of the children's singer. voice mm-hmm. sounds the same, mm-hmm. and that had to have been a huge undertaking since you didn't have any translation technology back then, right? So you would have had to yeah. brought in, bring in people mm-hmm. who could translate, who you were confident were translating correctly. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> that's true. Yeah, that's right. To make sure that it actually says what you wanted to say. Right. Yeah, not just yeah. something crazy. Right, the same tune. Not so, like it's badly mispronounced right, or you know, right. something like that. Yeah. So when it comes to Disney attractions, there is always a marquee of some sort that acts as a way for guests to know what attraction they're going to experience before even getting in the line. While the World's Fair wasn't exactly Disneyland, the team knew that they needed some sort of visual marquee to draw guests in. It's a Small World was tucked away in a corner, so, I mean, they really did especially want something like to draw people in. Um, The end result was the Tower of the Four Winds, a 120-foot structure. It was bright had dozens of moving pieces to represent the spirit of children. Rolly Crump was the one who designed it. Um, unfortunately, his design was had to be altered as builders constructed it to withstand any weather. So Rolly was a bit disappointed about that. But Walt still loved it, and it truly was an incredible feat that stood out at the World's Fair. So it was a huge success and was very well received. It drew in around um, 40,000 attendees a day which was incredible as it was a paid admission at the fair. It was one of the most popular attractions and estimated hosting 10 million guests during its two seasons. Wow. Seeing that the attraction was successful from the beginning, Walt ultimately decided it would find a permanent home in Disneyland. So Pepsi didn't own it. Right. Disney owned it. Yes. All right. Good Good for Disney. Good thinking. Yes. Construction started on the show building in the northeast corner of Fantasyland in 1965. Once the fair was over, the set pieces and figures could be shipped, then installed permanently. Nice. Once it got to Disneyland, the Tower of the Four Winds couldn't be brought. It, was, it would have been too expensive to bring it to Disneyland. So essentially, they need to create a new marquee for It's a Small World. So, because they weren't able to bring the Tower of the Four Winds, Rolly didn't want to reconstruct it. Rolly thought it, it would block the incredible new design and the clock face tower. Surprisingly, Walt agreed that the clock tower would signify as a great replacement as a focal point. The Tower of the Four Winds remained in New York until it was sadly destroyed. Yeah, we're looking at some pictures of the Tower of the Four Winds, and it's not, I wouldn't say... It's made from a durability perspective, right? No, it's it's very bright and eye-catching. It is. But even still, they did say the builders constructed it to be... Could withstand weather. Could withstand weather, which ultimately made the design a little different than Rolly originally intended. However, once it got to Disneyland, the clock tower was the new face, and the color scheme was basically white and gold. That's interesting that he chose that palette given that it was supposed to be like a children's thing, and a lot of times children's things... Were like bright reds and yellows and blues. Right, they were, at that time, they were more primary colors yeah. and that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, and he, it had a lot of like moving parts. 
It's a small world open on May 28, 1966 with international fanfare. Uh, representatives from a number of countries as well as, as members of the press were on hand to celebrate the occasion. Children from 16 regions were also there and poured water from the seven seas and nine major lagoons into the waterway of It's a Small World. Oh, very symbolic. Yeah. That is the beginning of yeah. um, It's no. a Small World and its beginning in Disneyland. So, in Di- But we are familiar with um, It's a Small World and Disney World. We are, yeah. Yes. So when you think about it, like, um, so the one in Disneyland has the clock face and has everything on the outside. The one in Disney World... It's kind of like inside. You have to go one, in. It's one of those meant to look like a tent. Yes. Kind of, kind of thing. Yes, and then once you go in, that's when it opens up, and you see the clock face and all these moving pieces. Although I don't, wouldn't say it's necessarily strictly the white and gold. I think they incorporate a little bit more color. Definitely, the larger structures are white and gold. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a small world. Is in each Disney park. In each, like, all over the world. In Disney World, it's in Magic Kingdom. It's in Disneyland. Disneyland Paris has it. Disneyland oh, Paris so all has over it. The world, Hong like Kong. Tokyo. Right, Tokyo, yeah. yes. Shanghai. And they're all just slightly different. So, for instance, Magic Kingdom, unlike Disneyland, the clock lacks the parade of wooden dolls and instead goes straight to opening the central pair of doors to reveal the time. In Tokyo Disneyland, there are scenes featuring various Disney characters redesigned in Mary Blair style that were added during the 2018 refurbishment. The Asian room features radically different sets and dolls for Japan and China compared to Magic Kingdom version. A Mandarin language track was added to the China section in the 2018 refurbishment. The ride uses different more recent recording of the song sung in Japanese. For Disneyland Paris, this is kind of interesting. See, unlike all the other versions of the rides, each scene is housed in one room with arches being used to define sections of the ride. The scenery design is a complete departure from Mary Blair's distinctive style, though the dolls used remain identical to all the other versions. The ride also uses a completely different soundtrack composed by John Debney, which can be described as more ornate compared to the original soundtrack. That's interesting. Yeah, this is the first version of the ride to incorporate a scene for North America with dolls represent Canada and United States, and a distinct Middle Eastern section with dolls singing in Arabic and Hebrew. Hmm. Yeah, and finally for the uh, Hong Kong Disneyland, uh, 38 Disney characters, all rendered in Mary Blair's style, uh, were added to scenes with where their stories originated. So I think, um, for instance, I saw a picture of Rapunzel from Tangled in one in a scene somewhere. Right. Um, and you can imagine, like, I imagine maybe like Merida from Brave from Brave might it's be common. in like yeah um, British kind of thing. Exactly. Um, an expanded Asian sequence with Hong Kong, the Philippines, and Korea. Represented with children singing in Cantonese and Korean and Tagalog, I think. T-A-G-A-L-O-G. So, sorry if I'm mispronouncing it. As well as an extended China scene with children singing in Mandarin. The finale is sung in three languages, Cantonese, English, and Mandarin. So, those are some differences. 
between all of the parks. From you guys, what is a pro and con from each of you about the ride or the song? Uh, I know that generally, I, I enjoy the ride. I, I really do like going every time that I, I go. It's not something that I would go out of my way to stand in a long line for. Mm-hmm. But if it's reasonable, if it's 20 minutes, maybe 30 minutes, I've already gone on a bunch of rides, I'll say, sure, I'll go on It's a Small World. Mm-hmm. My con is probably that I it's sometimes difficult for me to distinguish which country or area I'm supposed to be looking at. Like there's definitely there's definitely times when I can be like okay this is Mexico this is Peru this is Thailand but there's times when I've looked at a group of dolls and I've been just like I don't understand <laughs> there's no like guide with it there's no right. guide with yeah. it there's right? no sign to indicate yeah. yeah right you just have to kind of guess yeah yeah and I think I've mentioned before that I didn't go to Disney World until I was thirty so any of the Disney parks but I have a lot of nostalgia for Disney. Because it was part of my life growing up with TV shows and movies, but also music. One of the albums I had when I was a little kid was a Disney World album that had It's a Small World on it. So I really loved that song as a kid. So I have nostalgia or nostalgic feelings for It's a Small World. And it was one of, even though Disneyland is the original attraction, Disney World, it's still a original uh, attraction that Walt thought of. Um, early on so I also have those kind of feelings for it that I like to go on it but like Cole said I wouldn't go on it if the line is long Mm -hmm. now we've gone to Disney after hours several times where the lines are short and we usually go on it's a small world because there's no line to go on and it's fun to go through yeah yeah I don't really have I guess the con is it's not if you think about it objectively (laughs) as a ride um, it's fine you know, it's, it's very simple. And I think it's long. I'm yeah. surprised sometimes how long it is um, when you're in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the song, it's an earworm. It's catchy. It can get annoying right. a little bit. Like, thinking of other rides with other songs. Because there's plenty of other rides that have their right. own songs that I don't find annoying if I listen to them over right, and over, over again. Over like, right. Grim, Grinning Ghosts. Or Pirates of the Caribbean. Or Pirates of the Caribbean. Right. Or yeah, uh, Winnie the Pooh. Right. Or classic way to poop. What were you, Mom? I think for me, part of it is nostalgia, like Randy was saying. And part of it is when you've been out in the sun and walking around <laughs> and you're tired, like, it's a nice ride to get a little respite from the sun. It is a little longer. Yeah. It is cool and it's pleasant. Well, and I, the nice thing about it, too, is that it's, in terms of being a ride to rest on, you can kind of zone out a little bit on it and still enjoy what it is. It's not like if I'm going on Pirates of the Caribbean, for example, I'm kind of more drawn into what's going on around me. Yeah, more engaging, right? More engaging, right. Yeah. Small world, you can just kind of sit there and chill and you have a pretty good yeah. idea what's going by you. It's not really a storyline to it, no. right? No. Yeah. yeah, it's all very consistent. Yeah. But if you start looking around, there's a lot to look at. Yeah, it's yes. very colorful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Con... I don't really have one. Mm-hmm. If it's, How if long it's, would you wait for it? 30 minutes tops. Okay. I mean, yeah. that's a that's a top one. Yeah. It's, yeah. I guess con is it is very simplistic. So, right. so that would be the only thing. But, but overwhelmingly nice. among us, more pros than cons. Yeah, definitely. It's a small world. It was, it's, yeah, I have to think about a con. Like so a, have you seen the pictures of the little um, 
IP characters like the Mickey, Minnie, Daisy, Donald in Tokyo Disney no. Land version. So some people don't like it because it goes away from the Mary Blair original. But I actually like having the IP characters. But some of them also uh, decorate for the holidays. Yeah, they have decorated for the holidays, um, like putting a hat on the clock face, um, putting lights right. on the whole thing. So I kind of wish that Disney World would do that uh, yeah, because it's a little bit different. Right, and this is specifically for Disneyland because they have everything on the outside. They have the big right. spectacle yeah. on the outside. Disney World, like Cole said, it's like going into a tent Yeah, and then it like opens right. up. Well, it's in, uh, in Disney World, in that section of Fantasyland, they have a bunch of different buildings like secure right. building but they're designed to kind of look like the circus tents yeah like so a fair kind of, right yeah. so you can kind of go into um, i think that peter pan is the same way where yeah. it's kind of built as a tent and then you go into it the other thing i think of when i think of it's a small world now is when the kids were younger there's a series called kingdom keepers that was written by ridley pearson it's about a bunch of different kids who end up in the disney parks at night, and all the attractions come alive. Okay. Right, right. And they're like fighting the bad characters. Right. It's not officially a Disney-sanctioned no. book. <laughs> no, but it is, yes, but it is about the, the different parks and things like that. Um, so one of the things that happens is that they're in It's a Small World. The bad characters from Disney are kind of plotting against them because they want to take over and become real in the parks. So they trap them in It's a Small World in one of the scenes. And all the audio animatronic characters come to life and break off from their from their uh, uh, mounting and kind of come towards them through the water. Oh no! Yeah, it's coming after them, so they have to figure out how to get the. the when they're like climbing up the boats and yeah. like trying to bite them and stuff. Oh, yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. Yes. It so it's funny. difficult for me not to think about that when I yes. go through It's a Small World. Right? <laughs> exactly. Oh. So, yeah. listener, there you go. Yeah. 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 You now have something to think about in picture too. That's right. So I have the song right here. Let me play it for you real quick. Maybe we should have ended on a happier note. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Into the song. Well, the song's happy, so. Yeah. yeah. Rinse and repeat. That's right. Is It's a Small World anyone here's favorite Disney boat ride? No, no, but I think it's like a ride of path. Like, it's as classic as a carousel in my mind. Like, if I had kids, like, you would need to take them on It's a Small World. Absolutely. So I have It's a Small World stuck in my head now, so I can't think of any easy (laughs) transition into my topic. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for that, Sydney. So, wrapping up my series on off-brand attractions throughout the United States, I think that we've gone through some of the more well-known monuments at this point. So, some of the most popular designs for tombs, memorials, monuments uh, throughout the entirety of the world 
are obelisks, which come from, kind of hail from ancient Egypt. And if you don't know what an obelisk is offhand, it's kind of a large pillar, four-sided, that comes up to a pyramidal point. Um, so we have a number of obelisks here in the United States as well. Can you think of the, the most well-known obelisk in the United States? Mount Rushmore. No. <laughs> I'd say close, but you're not close. <laughs> it's the Washington Monument. Yeah, the Washington Monument. DC. Which is 555 feet high. Wow, that is tall. So it's a hefty one. But I'm going to be going from Washington right back to Lincoln like last week because Lincoln's resting place, his tomb, also comes up into a obelisk. So it's the final resting place of Lincoln, his wife... Mary Todd Lincoln, and three of their four sons. Uh, it's located in Oak Ridge Cemetery in Springfield, Illinois. Constructed of granite, the tomb has a single-story rectangular base surmounted by the obelisk with a semicircular receiving room entranceway on one end and a semicircular crypt or burial room opposite of that. Four flights of balustraded stairs, two flanking the entrance at the front and two in the rear, lead up to a level terrace. The balustrade extends around the terrace to form a parapet, where near the center are located several statues at the base of the obelisk. The obelisk itself rises about 117 feet um, further above the tomb, so it's already on a one-story elevation, and steps lead up to it from essentially four different angles. How many feet? 117. Oh, well, that was really tall. It is. Uh, it would have seemed taller if Sydney hadn't already mentioned that Disney quickly built the Tower of the Four Winds. Right. <laughs> just about as tall. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> over the course of a very short amount of time. But I guess the benefit of the obelisk that is that it is uh, solid rock. Right. So the bronze recasting of sculptor Gutzon Borglums. <laughs> Where to just go for it? Yep. <laughs> uh, head of Lincoln in the U.S. Capitol rests on a pedestal in the front of the entranceway inside the ground level entrance. At the close of the ceremonies and events marking Lincoln's death, his body was placed in a nearby receiving tomb and later in the state tomb, but the mausoleum is owned and administered by the state of Illinois as a Lincoln Tomb State Historical Site. So after Lincoln died... The tomb was eventually completed in 1874. So, for reference, Lincoln did die in 1865, so about nine years later. Okay. Mm-hmm. Lincoln's remains were interred in a marble sarcophagus in the center of a chamber known as the catacombs or the burial room. Oh, it's in, like a sarcophagus. Right. In 1876, however, after two Chicago criminals failed in an attempt to steal Lincoln's body and hold it for ransom... Hold it for ransom. I was thinking it was like a fun Nicolas Cage uh, <laughs> national treasure, like like going from oh we have to steal the Declaration of Independence to we have to steal Abraham Lincoln's body. <laughs> the National Lincoln Monument Association hid it in another part of the memorial, first under wood and other debris, then buried in the ground within the tomb. When Mrs. Lincoln died in 1882, her remains were placed with those of Abraham Lincoln. But in 1887, both bodies were reburied in a brick vault underneath the floor of the burial room. Okay. So, Lincoln's body was being 
moved, reburied, yeah. dug up. Yeah. Hid under debris. Wow. Just a, a whole ordeal, all under this giant obelisk. So I guess they were afraid no, more people room. would try to steal his remains. Right. Um, which I'm not sure why, no, other than sure. ransom, I guess. Yeah, I don't know. That's a weird one. It's weird. The Lincoln Tomb was designated a National Historic Landmark on December 19th, 1960, enlisted on the National Register of Historic Places in 1966. So that's actually on the later side, considering that it's Lincoln's tomb. Right, With yeah. a giant notable obelisk, an entire construction. The tomb is the center of a 12-acre plot constructed of granite. Infantry and cavalry statues are at the corners of the obelisk, and those are metal cast. So as you go up, you see the obelisk in front of you, a statue of Lincoln, and then on kind of surrounding it, are other circular, smaller parapets, which have all of these kind of Union-style infantry and cavalry statues on them. On the walls of the base are 37 huge stones cut to represent raised shields, each engraved with the name of a state at the time the tomb was built. Each shield is connected to another by two raised bands, and thus the group forms an unbroken chain encircling the base. Four bronze statues adorn the corners of the ladder. They represent the infantry, navy, artillery, and cavalry of the Union during the Civil War period. And like I said, in front of the obelisk and above the entrance stands a full-length statue of Lincoln. <laughs> so the obelisk is obviously the kind of the centerpiece of the entire tomb. Stretches way up into the sky. You can, you know, kind of draws the eye there. But the entire thing, it's not quite like the Washington Monument, where the Washington Monument is really kind of just the obelisk. Right. Um, there's a number you can go in to the uh, to the first story. There's more to the monument with the various statues and right. other things that are going on. So, if you're near Springfield, Illinois, and have hankering to go to Oak Ridge Cemetery. Yeah, that's neat. Then it's a a smaller but still great obelisk to go check out. Neat. And I know in that area there's a number of Lincoln museums, so you ha- you can actually make that part of a trip to see a number of right. historic sites. If you're if you're going on kind of a Springfield, Illinois area Lincoln tour, right? Then this is absolutely a must. That's right. If we were still homeschooling the kids, that would have been a great field trip to take them on. Yep. Mm-hmm. Although it's still a great field trip for any age. True. That's true. We could force them to go. That's right. Guess what we're doing, kids? <laughs> well, I don't have the, the time off for that. <laughs> that's true. Well, yeah, that's, that's true. different. So thank you for those fun topics this week. Our future festivities are for the week of June 29th. June 29th is Hug Holiday. June 30th is Meteor Day. July 1st is National Creative Ice Cream Flavors Day. July 2nd is World UFO Day. July 3rd is National Chocolate Wafer Day. Hmm. July 4th is Independence Day for the United States. And July 5th is National Apple Turnover Day. You can always find us on social media, on Twitter at Holiday underscore Moons. For Instagram, we're at Holiday Moons, one word. And you can find us by searching the Facebook search bar. We have a Facebook page and a Facebook group. By searching Holiday Moons. You can contact us at any time at holidaymoons at 
gmail.com. So for Beth, Randy, Sydney, and Cole, it's, it's a small, small world after all. all.